set their clocks forward that hour. And uh, just trust the Lord for a little bit of extra rest, even though we lost it. Um, if you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Psalm chapter 3. Uh, we've been s- just spending a couple weeks here in the Psalms. We'll probably do this uh, up through Easter. I'll do Psalm 4 next week. Uh, the week after that, Neil is going to be preaching, actually. How many people are excited to hear Neil preach? I'm excited to hear Neil preach. Yeah. Where's Neil at? See you, buddy? Everybody's fired up about that. I am too. Um, but Neil's going to be in Psalm 5, and then we'll probably make it to about Psalm 8, and then we'll be at Easter. And like Conrad said, uh, just I don't usually really do announcements at this time, but like if you want to get baptized, if you've never been baptized, you want to get baptized, we're going to be having a baptismal service on Easter Sunday. I am totally pumped about that because we're going to be celebrating the resurrection, and Easter is always a good time. Uh, but we are going to baptize you, which is a picture of dying with Christ and being raised again. And we're just trusting the Lord for salvation that day and to do awesome things among us. But if you want to be baptized, please see myself or one of the other elders or sign up on the website and let us know. We've already got a handful of people that are going to be getting baptized, and we would love for you to join them. So Psalm chapter 3, before we get into this, I, I want to share... Um, a little bit of a story that's a little bit of a personal story that has just been uh, that's happened in the last month or so and I've struggled a little bit with whether or not to share it just because (coughs) it is kind of personal but um, it just has so like in this season the Lord has just been showing me the depths of this um, over and over again and I just keep coming back to it and I'm very thankful for kind of the image that he's given, but um, it involves the little boy that we're fostering right now, and I'm going to try to tell the story without actually saying his name, uh, because we are still fostering, and um, and by the grace of God, next month, uh, April 18th, Lord willing, we will adopt him, and he will be officially ours, so we're looking forward to that, Um, but we have him, we've had him since October, and uh, part of having him and that we are very committed to because we've just enjoyed it so much and it's been so helpful is that we take him to therapy uh, every month counseling and uh, not physical therapy but for just his soul and his little heart with all that he's been through and uh, our counselor is just terrific like we just love her to death and and so she does um, what's called play therapy and going into it, I, I'd kind of heard of play therapy, and I was somewhat familiar with it, but I knew that part of what play therapy is is that kids express themselves through play, and so as they're you know, playing and stuff, they might express what's in their heart. And, I, and so I got that, and I understood that. But what I didn't fully understand is that there's kind of another part to play therapy, and that's not just that they express what's in their heart, but then as they're playing, to help them redirect the play Um, in a way that uh, kind of redirects their story and redirects the narrative of what what they're acting out. And and again, if you're familiar, if you're like trained in play therapy, I'm sure that's an oversimplification. Um, But that's kind of the way way that I've seen it. And so so Hannah and I had both been taking him to this therapy for a while, and then for a couple weeks, um, Hannah had taken him by himself just because my schedule didn't work out during the week to go. Uh, and during that time, again, our, our counselor was just awesome, and so um, it seemed that uh, he was kind of bonding to Hannah more than to me. So uh, the counselor suggested that for a few weeks that I just take him by myself, so I did. And so one of the weeks we're doing this, and I'll give you an, an example here of what I'm talking about. 
is one of the things that she um, had him do is just draw pictures, and sometimes we play with little Play-Doh cutouts of little lions and monkeys and bears and stuff like that, and so I'm down there playing with him, you know. We're working this out, but, but one day he was, she had him draw a picture, and he begins to draw this picture, and he's a good little artist for only five years old, uh, better than me because I have no artistic ability at all, but he begins to draw this, this bear, and, um, and she says, oh, Jordan, oh, I'll let his name slip, sorry, but um, she said, who is this? And he goes, oh, it's a baby bear. And, uh, and he continues to draw, and, and pretty soon, though, he gives the baby bear a little frowny face. And she says, oh, how does, how does the bear feel? And he says, well, the bear is, the bear is mad and sad. And she goes, oh, why, why is he sad? Well, because somebody's trying to get him. And she said, okay, well, let's draw that, too. And so we taped on another piece of paper to the little piece of paper, and he drew this, you know, little guy, and he was, like, shooting arrows or something. At, at the bear. And so one of the things with kids, these traumatic backgrounds, is they have this deep, and under, so understandably so, they have this deep desire and this, feel this great need to have to protect themselves because many times they've not had anybody protect them so far in their life. And, and so he begins to draw this and he begins to draw these claws on the bear because the bear has to protect himself. And she says, okay, buddy, well, now we're going to let daddy, we're going to let daddy come in and, and, you know, help now, and he's going to draw, so daddy's going to draw somebody protecting the little bear, and so, you know, I didn't know she was going to do that, but I'm like, okay, and again, I have no artistic ability, so I'm like, I'll do my best, you know, and, but I step in there, and I start drawing this little stick figure, and, and, uh, and again, it was literally just a stick figure, and I didn't know what to do, but I just began to draw this circle, and this shield kind of intercepting intercepting these arrows that were being shot at the baby bear. And, and I said, hey, buddy, I said, you see, you see this right here? And he goes, yeah. I said, this right here is a super shield. I said, absolutely nothing can get through this. And then I, you know, I just had this little round head, and I just drew kind of just a straight line for my mouth. Not that I was angry, but I said, and you see daddy's mouth? I said, um, daddy isn't mad at the baby bear, but I said, Daddy gets very, very upset when anybody messes with his baby bear. I said, nobody messes with Daddy's baby bear. And you see how we're like redirecting and playing. As I said that, it was, it was just this cool Holy Spirit moment where he literally, as I said that, nobody messes with Daddy's baby bear. He literally just goes, he smiles, and he was a little ways away from me, and he goes, and he just snuck over to me. And me and the counselor, I think we're about ready to burst into tears, and she goes, would you like to give daddy a hug right now? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we, and again, not all, you know, not all is fixed, but here's the reason I tell that story. And this is what the Lord's been, been showing me, and again, it's just been timely, because it, that happened right as I was getting ready to get into the book of Psalms. But what I want to tell you this morning and show in a little bit of an example from Psalm 3, is that prayer, but especially praying the Psalms, is like play therapy for our souls. That in it, you see David expressing what's in his heart, expressing his fears, expressing his anxieties, expressing his doubts, his worries, his concerns, 
but then you also see him according to the truth of what he knows about God, redirecting that narrative, not staying there. He expresses the fear, he expresses the anxiety, he expresses all that, but he's also then, he changes the narrative. And he always comes around, he, he ends up declaring that God is good. And you see this all over. And we'll see it in Psalm 3, I, I'll give you, you know, Psalm 13 as just another example. He starts out Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Or will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He expresses what's true, what's in his heart. But by the end of the psalm, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And my heart shall sing in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Historically, the psalms have always been looked at as kind of the prayer book of the church. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a wonderful little book uh, just called The Psalms, um, the prayer book of the Bible. And again, what I want to suggest this morning is that I I don't know how much you guys read the Psalms, um, but there's a reason why it's the biggest book in the Bible. And I think that it truly has the power, and all the, this is true for all the Word of God, but especially the Psalms, it has the power to transform us from the inside out and from kind of the outside in as we pray through them, as we engage in them, and as we pray them back to God. Because see, here, here's what I, you know, the narrative of our little guy that we brought into our home um, is that he has been abandoned in his short little five-year existence. Um, And he's been moved around a lot. But I know this morning that each and every single one of us here, myself included, each one of us has a narrative as well of ways that we've been hurt, ways that we've been left down, ways that people that we thought were going to be there for us, they weren't there for us, ways that we thought God was going to be there for us, but it didn't work out the way that we thought, and so now we're not, we're not really sure about him. And I think, again, that what the Psalms teach us is that we have got to be intentional about coming into the Lord's presence and praying through what his word says is true in order to redirect the narrative of our lives. So for our little guy, I want him to know above all else, that there's going to be somebody in his life, and we're far from perfect, but we're going to protect him now. He doesn't have to protect himself. But I understand why he feels the need to have to protect himself, because, he's, because of what he's been through, but that's not the case now. And I just wonder this morning, and I just want to ask this question, and then we'll get into the, into the text here, but what narrative needs to change in your life this morning? What is the narrative? And I'm just praying right now, Holy Spirit, do it. What is the narrative that the Lord wants to change in your heart, in your life? People told you over and over again that you're a failure, that you'd never be good enough, that you're too this or that you're too that. Sometimes it's not a negative narrative. Sometimes it's, a, it's kind of a, a super positive narrative that you're always, you're always the kid, you always got good grades. You're always successful. 
you always, and you always felt this need to be perfect. And one or two things probably happened there that if that's your narrative, if that's your story, is that number one, maybe you became proud. And you're kind of hiding something secretly in your life, but you can't let anybody know because the narrative of your life is that you've always got it together. So you can't, there's no way you can let anybody find out. Or maybe if that's the narrative, the other thing that's probably happened is that it has just crushed you. You have just fallen under the weight of that narrative that people have spoken over you over the years that you've always got to be perfect, but you know you're not. So you just said, I can't do this thing. I see this all the time, especially from people growing up in church. So that they had to be a good little boy. They had to be a good little girl. But, and yeah, like we want to teach our kids morals and ethics and the right way to live and, and, and how to follow Jesus. But I'll tell you, there's one person who was good. And it was Jesus. And he came to die for sinners like me and you. Amen? You with me? Okay, let's go Psalm 3. And I just, I, I want to... Um, make this, I guess, as practical as I can, but I'm not trying to make it practical. I, I think I see it here in the text, and I want to show it to you, is that there's kind of four things, and, and they're kind of a progression. There are four things that David confesses or declares. Um, and again, he just kind of works through in prayer, maybe not play therapy, but prayer therapy, we might call it. But here's the first thing. Number one, confess the gravity of your situation. Or confess the gravity, the severity of your situation or your circumstance. David says in verses one and two, oh Lord, he just starts out like, you know, just God, you ever done that? You ever prayed that way? Just Jesus, I need you. Oh Lord. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Now this is really interesting when you understand the context of this passage and what David was going through. If you look up, most of your Bible should have in it, right there probably like beside the, the chapter number three, and this is part of the inspired text. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So here's the context of David writing this psalm, is that Absalom is his son, and Absalom has tried to usurp the throne. If you guys know the story of David, the little shepherd boy, he defeats Goliath for a while. He's like absolutely like a national hero. Everybody's singing songs about him. Saul is slain as thousands, but David is tens of thousands, but not anymore. Now they're saying there's no salvation for him in God. In other words, God has abandoned him. Why? Because David sinned with Bathsheba. Part of the uh, discipline of that whole thing is that God told him through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he said, the sword will never depart from your house, and behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Just a few chapters later then, you have this story of Absalom, his son, who the Bible says that in all of Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsomeness as Absalom. So if the Bible says you're good looking, you're good looking. You know what I'm saying? The Bible says Absalom was good looking. And it, it's so funny. Sorry, this is a little bit of, of an aside, but like it goes on to describe his handsomeness. It talks about how much his hair weighed. Like he had this long flowing mane, just manly man, you know? It's on the cover of GQ magazine. And, and man, he's smart. He's a politician. He begins to sit at the city gates <coughs> and say, oh, if only there was somebody 
like me to hear your cases and I could judge rightly. And two different times in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it says that the hearts of the men of Israel all went after Absalom. And so Absalom is kind of a spoiled brat, um, but he's good looking and he's smart. He's a good talker. He's smooth and cunning. And he has usurped the throne of David and all of Israel and has declared himself king and all of Israel is going after him. And now David is on the run. And here's what's so interesting about this, and yet such good news to us as you see David work through this, is because it's one thing for me to call upon God with confidence when I know that I'm innocent and I know that somebody else is doing me wrong. I'm like, Lord, you know, like, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner, but you know my heart. I didn't mean to do this. This guy is wronging me. And so I tend to pray with confidence then. But what about when it's because you've actually messed up? You've actually screwed up. You really did what you shouldn't have done. And part of the result of that is, like, that's what David is experiencing here. And so you begin to feel some of the consequence of your wrongdoing, of what he did. What about then? Can you pray to God with confidence then? Is God going to utterly forsake you then? Is our God a God who stands back and says, made your bed, you got a lie in it, I'm done with you, buddy. He's not. And David here, and again, we'll get to the good news of this, but right here at the beginning, the first thing we need to do in beginning to change the narrative of our lives and of our story into what God would have is that if we're going to change our narrative, we have to be honest about our narrative. We have to be honest about what our story has been so far. And David says, and I, and I love this, many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul. He knows what everybody's saying. Doesn't that stink? Have you guys been there? Like it's one thing to be gossiped about and then maybe you see some of the, I don't know, some of the... Uh, outworkings of that, but then, then you find out what everybody's been saying. And they're saying, there's no salvation for him and God. And then, I love this little word, and it's three times in the Psalms, it appears I think 71 times in the entire book of Psalms, three times in this one. But this little word, Selah. Um, selah. And commentators are not 100% sure what it means, although the general consensus is, is that it's this musical term, um, because most of the psalms were put to music, and it, it, it's the idea of like a pause, or like a little bit ago when the worship team was playing, some of those times where it's like in between a verse and a chorus, or the bridge and the chorus, or whatever, and there's just kind of like a, a musical interlude. But the point is, is that you're just supposed to sit there for a second and kind of think about it. And again, this is why this is so important not to rush through this first step in this process of, of prayer therapy and changing our narratives in the presence of God is that <clears throat> he says, many are saying that of my soul there's no salvation for him in God, Selah. See, here's what you gotta do, guys. We can't be afraid of what our reality has been if we want our reality to change. And what we have to do sometimes is just bring all of it, all the ugliness, all the hurt, all the pain, whether it's because of our own ignorance and stupidity or if it's because we're truly being wronged. But no matter what it is, bring it all right here to say this is it. And look at it full on. 
Don't hide any of it. But look it all in the face. Because the next step is that just like we need to confess the gravity of our situation, we also need to then confess the greatness of our God. And you see him doing this in verse 3 and 4. He brings all the situation right in front of him. There's no salvation for him and God. They say, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You talk about a super shield. God is the super shield, man. Nobody, nobody, nobody can get through him. And when he allows evil, when he allows pain in your life, it is for a purpose and for his honor and for his glory. And nothing got through your life because he was off taking a nap somewhere, because he turned his back, or he just forgot to check his schedule and forgot that you know, he had that appointment with you. If you are in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, nothing comes into your life that does not first go through his hands. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. He's a shield. He's there for protection. I love that little phrase. This is just so stuck with me this week as I've been going over this psalm and meditating upon it. You are my you're my glory. You're my glory. What does, that, what does that mean? God is our glory of our life. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says, Thus said the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and that he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in all these things I delight, declares the Lord. And guys, no matter what your situation or circumstances this morning, no matter the level of pain, and man, you know, it's like when you go to the doctor and they got the little, you know, frowny faces, smiley faces, you know, on a scale of one to ten, what is, what, what is your pain? Um, when, I had, <laughs> when I had my, uh, uh, broke my neck and had my neck surgery, the surgery, coming out of the surgery, was way more painful than the broken neck. And the doctor told me that going in. He said, when you wake up, it's going to feel like somebody stuck a hatchet in the back of your neck. And I don't remember this because I passed out right away again. But apparently when they, brought, when they woke me up after having the surgery, I woke up throwing punches and I just said, it's a 10, it's a 10, it's a 10. And I, and I like, no, passed back out, passed back out again. But maybe that's you. You're like, it's a 10, it's a 10. I'm hurting. God, where are you? And listen, I know that experientially right now in your life, I, listen, I know that that can be your reality, but I'm telling you there's another reality. And that is that God wants to be the glory and the lifter of your head, guys. He wants to be your glory. David said, he's my glory. Other people's, yes, I, but not right now. He's mine. He's my glory. He wants to be your glory. He wants to be the lifter of your head. This is an intimate, he's coming over to you. No, no, no. I mean, have you, I, you know, our, our kids are, kids are different. <coughs> Some of them need to be told repeatedly that they are wrong because they're never wrong. Uh, other kids, you just kind of look at them wrong and they're just like, you know, they've never had to be spanked, they're just kind of shamed. And our one kid who shall remain nameless, who's like that, um, that you just kind of look at him wrong and he's, 
he, he's sad. It's like, okay, buddy, you will go over to him sometimes, just like, look, look at me. What you did was wrong. But I love you. I always love you. And that's what he's talking about here, guys, is that God wants to be the glory, the lifter of you. Listen, David. Yeah, I mean, I told you this was part of the deal. The sword is not going to depart from your house, and many of your own household are going to turn against you. But listen, I love you. I want to be the glory and the lifter of your head. And guys, what I'm asking you this morning is even though you may not have experienced that yet, that you would right now, in this moment, you have the ability to do this in Christ Jesus, right now, in this moment, that you would choose to believe that. That you would choose to believe that. It's what you got to do. Because, again, first of all, we confess the gravity of the situation. Then we confess the greatness of our God. But third then, you see David do this, we have to confess what we're going to choose to believe. And notice what he does here. He says, you're the glory, the lifter of my head. And he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. He says, verse 5, I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me again. David had truly done this. He trusted because he's able to sleep. And then verse 6, and then he makes this declaration. He makes this confession about what he's going to choose to believe. The 10,000 are still around him. The army's still closing in on him. There's no deliverance yet. But what does he declare? Verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Why? Because the Lord is my shield and my strength, my glory, and the lifter of my head. What do you believe in this morning? What are you believing right now? What narrative have you come in here this morning believing about yourself? And I'm not saying that there's not some things that are not experientially true about it and that you might have some legit reasons to believe the things that you're believing, the negative thought patterns and lies that you're believing. But again, what I'm asking of you is that you look at all the negative, you then look at how great your God is, and then you say, I'm going to choose to believe in who my God is. I'm not going to stay here. Love that. See, because it's one thing. It's one thing to say God is the glory and the lifter of your head once he's fully delivered you. Once the army has gone away, once the 10,000 are no longer surrounded you, once you're back in the house of the Lord and with God's people and you're surrounded by his presence and you're having a good worship service. And man, that, that, that's good. And we praise God for those times as well too. But it's one thing to say it then. It's another thing to say, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people. When you look out and you see the 10,000s of people, you see the enemy surrounding you. Can you declare it then? Guys, that is what God calls us to. The Bible over and over again says that what we do, that this is a fight of faith from first to last. Again, when the, you guys know the, the famous story. When the disciples are in the boat going across the Sea of Galilee with Jesus and he's asleep and the storm comes up and the waves are crashing over them. And I mean, these guys are fishermen, a lot of them. They've been on the sea. They've encountered storms before. So this was a bad storm. But these seasoned fishermen, these guys that had experience on a boat, they are freaking out. And they're running around screaming like a bunch of little girls. And um, I didn't mean that to be offensive to any girls who scream at all. I, sometimes I just, you know. Anyway. But you know, they're running around screaming and they go and they wake Jesus up. 
And, and Jesus gets up and goes, oh, you of little faith. I'm going, you of little faith? Like, they, they, Jesus, they woke you. Like, that's what we're supposed to do. Things get tough, we go get Jesus. We wake him up. Jesus, what are you, what are you going to do? Well, first of all, they're freaking out, but what did he want from him? I think what he wanted from him, he just wanted them to curl up right next to him. See, and, and again, going back there a couple verses, I love verse 5. I lie down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Can you rest in him? That's when you know that your faith is real. And I encourage you just to work through looking full on at the situation and looking full on at the greatness of your God. God guys, listen, here, here's, how you, here's how you do this, okay? You've you, you got to, like, like, take this book and go get alone somewhere. Out in a field, out in the woods, in a, when nobody's home at the house, um, in a room, lock the door, you know, what, whatever you have to do. But you get alone and you open this book and you read through it and you read it out loud and you confess back to God. You tell God about the promises that he's made. Now, he's not forgotten them. He knows them all. But again, this is where the prayer therapy like, comes in. We have to truly work through it. And as we declare these promises of who God is, again, verse 4, he says, I, he goes, I, he wasn't just meditating upon this. Verse 4, he says, I what? I cried aloud to the Lord. He cried out loud to God, and God met him. And then as he cried aloud, he was then able to sleep. He was able, he was able to rest. We have to choose what we're going to believe. And lastly, <clears throat> We have to confess in the end and declare, uh, mainly to ourselves, that God knows how to do his job. God knows how to do what he does. Namely, bring salvation in our lives. Verse 7, and this is, if you study this, this is, this is actually the only request in the whole psalm. We always think of prayers just always asking for stuff. And, and hear me, that's part of it. God wants us to do that. But this is the only request. This is the only thing he asks for in the whole psalm. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me. Right there. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Arise, save. Arise, save. O my God. And then if you jump down to verse 8, I love this phrase. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's, here's what, what, why I say that we need to confess and declare that God knows how to do his job. That little phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, what, as I studied that, what, what it's talking about is how, God, like this, thing, this salvation thing, whether it be eternal salvation, where you're going to spend eternity, or functionally day-to-day -day in your life in different situations that you run into and you need delivered, there is only one who can do that. And his name is Jesus. And th like, th this is what he does. And we don't need to tell him how to do his job. How many of you have ever had somebody who's not your boss tell you how to do your job? They don't have experience in it. They don't even fully get what all you're doing. But they come around and they tell you how you need to be doing your job. Have you enjoyed that? Yeah, that's always fun, isn't it? And you don't know whether to laugh, cry, or yell. And uh, Ephraim was telling me the other day, oh, I, sh 
I, I'm using my kids in illustrations a lot this morning, but try not to embarrass them too much. But Ephraim was telling me the other day that there's a kid um, who every now and then he'll really like challenge the math teacher and tell the math teacher that the way he's doing the problem is wrong. And Ephraim said, you can just tell that the math teacher's like, what, like, what are you doing? Like, you know, guys, we don't need to tell God how to do his job. You know what his job is? It's salvation. Salvation for his people. And so David here, and here's what I want to point out. Because see, what do you pray? What do you pray when your son, whom David still loves and, and is grieved over this, what do you do when your son is coming after you and the nation that God has called you to lead has now gone after him and he's coming? Like, do you, do you ask that God, you know, get him? Does he, I mean, he does say here at the end of verse 7, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. And that, that's just a, like a euphemism for just like, you know, shame them, Lord. Show that, you know, re- redeem it. Um, show that, you know, you're for me and with me. But like, what, what do you pray you know, so many times in situations and circumstances that are difficult, guys, I don't know what to pl- pray. But the good news that I've seen in this text this morning is that that's okay. Because what we can say is what we can pray is, that, Lord, arise, save me, do it however you want, because salvation belongs to you. You know what you're doing. And you know, and you know how to save. Worship team, you can come up. We'll begin to close. Salvation does belong to God, guys. And throughout history, um, he has done it in a way that only he could do it. And it's all for his honor and for his glory. Hosea chapter 13, he says, But I am the Lord your God from the, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. In Revelation chapter 7, People gathered around his throne. Their song is, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, again, this great multitude gathered around the throne. Say, they say, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. If you just think just with me real, from, from beginning to end of the Bible, just think through it with me real quick, quickly. You, you've got the Red Sea. Who would have thought about that? Only God. That I'm going to bring them out and then I'm going to bring Pharaoh's army out and I know everybody's going to be freaking out because <laughs> they think that, you know, and, then, and then again, and again they, they so quickly turn back. And they say, God's just brought us out here in the desert to destroy us because there weren't enough tombs in Egypt. No, that's not the case at all. I'm going to do something that's never been done before. The walls of Jericho, who'd have thought of that? Here's a great military strategy. I just, guys, I just want you to go out and I just want you to walk around it for about a week and then on the last day I want you to walk around it seven times and then just scream really loud. It'll work, trust me. Who would have ever thought about a little shepherd boy with absolutely no military experience at all coming out against a seasoned veteran in war and a giant, no less, Goliath? Who would have thought about the fiery furnace, and instead of just keeping them from it, he allows them to go in it. But even then, the flames can't touch him. Salvation belongs to our God. And the greatest means of salvation, more than all those and all the others we could list, guys, is this. It's the cross. Only God 
only God in all of his wisdom would have thought of a way to justify his enemies so that we who were once far off could be brought near by the blood of Christ. Salvation belongs to our God. Amen. I want to tell you this morning that God in all of his wisdom if he thought up the Red Sea and if he thought up Jericho and if he thought a little David fighting Goliath and you know the lion's den and the fiery furnace and all these things that we've learned all our lives and, and above all if he thought up the cross and he made it happen so that you and I can have salvation. I just want to tell you this morning that no matter what you're going through, listen, I'm not minimizing it at all. You may look out right now and you see the 10,000 round about you and you're surrounded, but I want to tell you that it's not too big of an issue for God. Salvation belongs to Him. And as we close this morning, as we do every morning, you know, we close with communion. And, uh, and again this morning, as we come, if you find yourself in a situation or a circumstance, you're like, I, I just have no idea. I have no idea how I'm going to get out of this. And even if you say, and I know that the reason I'm in this is because it's kind of because of me. <laughs> it's my fault. I want to tell you, that in Christ Jesus, there is deliverance this morning and there is hope. And so come and take these things again. Not these things aren't going to save you, but the, what these represent does save you. And the God whose body was broken, Jesus Christ, and his blood was poured out, he now has been risen and he lives forever to make intercession for you. He sits at God's right hand with all power and authority. And guys, he loves you. He wants to be the glory and the lifter of your head. So you guys stand with me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Father, we come to you again this morning and we thank you, Lord, we thank you that salvation is found in no other name and that salvation does not belong to us but that it belongs to you because your way is best and it is right and it is true. And Father, I pray that you would help each individual heart here this morning to work through the process that we've looked at this morning of coming to you honestly about where we're at, about who you are, about what we will believe. And Lord, that in the end, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. So as we come this morning, Lord, I pray that we could come in faith, trusting your word, knowing that you're good. Please help us to worship you rightly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.